Well, uh, I am like super, super pumped uh, to announce that uh, we are going to begin our journey through the book of Daniel today. Today is the day. And I, I guess I should say thank you to Cameron. There he is. Thank you, Cameron, for preaching a great sermon last week and uh, reminding us of how God manifests his power in our weakness. And, uh, and thanks for the, the week off. It was nice just to come and worship with you guys and not, not have to do a bunch of stuff, just hang out. So thanks for the break, buddy. Uh, but today we're getting started on, on uh, something I'm really excited about. And a little trepidatious, because uh, Daniel's a kind of a challenging book. Uh, the series will be expositional, which means line by line, which also means that I really don't have any idea how long we'll be in it. Um, you can, you know, there's a bunch of different uh, outlines out there and formats for the book, and I was looking them over, and I thought, well, that's a good idea, and that's a good idea, you know, 26 weeks, 36 weeks, 46 weeks, and all that, but um, my whole angle is... Uh, let's just see how the Spirit leads us and, and where He wants us to break up the passages and focus and stuff. So, so I don't know how long it will be, um, but I also know that we are not going to be in a hurry to get through it uh, because uh, that's just the way we roll. There's not some better thing that we need to get to in the weeks to come or months to come. So uh, this, is, this is God's best for us right now. Amen. Anywhere in his word is his best, and so we're just going to cruise in Daniel. We'll see how that goes. We'll follow the Spirit's lead. This morning, we're going to deal with uh, the introduction. And, and normally, when I, when I preach through a book, I like to spend a little time up front talking about the book and, uh, you know, um, just laying out some, some groundwork and some facts about it so that we can best understand uh, verses and chapters and sections and all that as we get to them. So I think it's really important that we understand sort of the, the, the basic truths about the book itself. So today we're going to look at, basically we're going to cover the who, what, when, and why of Daniel so that we can better understand what we're about to, to study. So we'll actually begin to get into the text, Lord willing, uh, next week, but this week is an introduction. We'll deal with, like I said, the who, what, when, and why. Today's message will be, and I just have to put this up as a disclaimer, it's going to be less preachy, if you want to call it that, and um, probably maybe more informational, which I've got to admit tends to, you know, if, if, it's, if it's like that and it's drug out, I tend to get bored myself when I listen to those kinds of things. And I, I'm really praying and hoping that you don't get bored, that, that the facts about the book and the foundation of it kind of it keeps you going and energized and attentive. So I, I think it's just really important to do this. But I just wanted to warn you, it's going to be less pulpit-pounding sermon and more facts and information. And so with that being said, you probably uh, keep yourself awake, make a coffee run downstairs if you need to, it's okay. Uh, and be ready to listen, to be attentive, and to take some notes. And I think uh, it'd be befitting to pray one more time before we actually start looking at it. I've kind of divided this sermon into sections, and we have four sections. And uh, I'll explain all that as we move on. Father uh, in heaven, we, we do ask that you would help us right now. And uh, don't really want this message to be some kind of 
college-level course uh, where, you know, we're just getting a lot of data. It's kind of a cognizant dump kind of thing or some cognitive dump. We don't want that. We do want to hear from you, and we want to be struck by the facts about this book and uh, because they, they are rooted in Scripture, and uh, we want to be conformed to the image of Christ more, even through an introduction. And so we, we pray, Lord, that we would be attentive, that you would help us do that, and that you would impact us, um, and uh, impact us with the facts, and build a good foundation for the weeks to come as we begin to exposit this marvelous and mysterious book. So help us this morning with that, to pay attention, to take some notes, and to learn and to be conformed to the image of Christ, to grow, to be sanctified, and help us to take, you know, just do whatever it is that you call us to do this morning. We pray that you'd be glorified in, in this message and in all that we do, and we pray this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. So let's begin with section one, and some sections are longer than others because others need more attention. They need more work. We'll begin with the who. Who wrote Daniel? Okay, maybe this would be like a crash course on the book of Daniel. That's the way that you could look at this. Who wrote Daniel, right? Because you have these biblical books in the Bible, and, and they're written by various authors. And, and so it's important for us to know who and maybe some things about this, this particular person. The book of Daniel actually identifies the prophet Daniel as its author. What does that mean? It means that Daniel was written by Daniel. Now, that's interesting because there are some Bible books that were written that do not bear the name of the author. So, Lamentations is a good example. I believe that was written by Jeremiah. And you might not know that right off the bat, but, you know, books were written by various authors, and sometimes they bear the name of the author, sometimes they don't. And quite frankly, there's some books in the New Testament, maybe Hebrews, where we're not really certain as to who wrote it. The church thought that Paul wrote it for many, many centuries, and now the church is going, I don't know. So, but this particular book that bears the name Daniel was written by a prophet named Daniel. Daniel was written by Daniel. And interestingly, Jesus acknowledged and even mentioned uh, Daniel as the author of this particular book. In 2415 of Matthew, the Lord Jesus literally says Daniel the prophet, Daniel the author in a sense. And so, and, and I, why do I even say this? Well, I think it's important to know who wrote the books, but this is a contested truth. People have been arguing for centuries and centuries and centuries especially in the last century, that Daniel is not the author. It was written by somebody else. Usually it's liberal scholars that come up with these ideas. And of course, what they're working to do is just undermine the validity of the book. But that's why I say this. But it is Daniel. He is the one who wrote it. Jesus himself even acknowledged that. And that's why I can't ever figure out, when Scripture makes things clear, I can't figure out how people come up with these other ideas that profess Christ. Like somehow you're a Christian and you don't think that he authored it. That's weird. Now, who was Daniel, though? Okay, so we've already acknowledged the fact that he's the author of this book. We've acknowledged the fact that he was a prophet. Um, we want to acknowledge the fact that he was born into a royal family. It says it right there in chapter 1. I'm not going to call out all the verses because we're going to teach through that. But he was part of a royal family, part of, a, uh, part of what it says, either royal family or nobility. Okay? Obviously, uh, we might want to say that he was Jewish and he was from basically Jerusalem, but he was part of a royal family or some sort of nobility, which means that he had some class and some ranking, probably some education and these sorts of things. 
Secondly, I'd say this about him, and, and there's plenty of facts about Daniel in the book of Daniel and throughout Scripture, but secondly, when he was a teenager, he was carried away, probably 14, 15 they estimate, he was carried away at 14 or 15 to Babylon, okay, so he lived in Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar came against the city and besieged it, and he took a lot of the Jews out of the city. He did it in three waves. And during one of these waves, I believe it might have been the first wave, Daniel was caught up in that deportation and taken out of there. He was just a young man. But he possessed unique skills and, um, and an appearance. He was a handsome young man. He was very smart. He was part of nobility, as I said. So he was selected to receive like special training when he was brought to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar's army, he was selected to be a part of the Royal Academy of Nebuchadnezzar, which was kind of an elite group of people, not soldiers per se, but servants, people who would work in his administration. I think it's really fascinating that Nebuchadnezzar, who was a mighty, mighty king during this time, he would take foreign people and then train them and then make them part of his administration, which is really interesting, you know, it's to say that you didn't have enough qualified people in your own kingdom to do that? Maybe not. But in any case, Daniel was someone whom caught his attention, and he immediately entered in, in, into this sort of royal academy for Nebuchadnezzar. Thirdly, Daniel served as a high official under three kings, okay? Basically, under the Babylonian Empire, he served under Nebuchadnezzar up front, and then um, Belshazzar, who was the, you know, I believe it was probably Nebuchadnezzar's son. He was the next king to reign. And then under Darius, I think it's Darius the Mede. So those three kings, basically what I'm telling you is Daniel's prophetic ministry and his service to Babylon it went on for a lot of years. He was under Nebuchadnezzar, he was under Belshazzar, and he was under Darius. So three different kings who ruled over Babylon, he was an appointed official under those three. Pretty amazing. Uh, I would say that you'd have to have some pretty great integrity, character, skill sets to be used by that many kings. Uh, fourthly, Daniel gained a reputation for his ability to interpret prophetic dreams. Okay, so like in Nebuchadnezzar's case, he would have a dream, and, and it was a dream that was confusing to him, and he didn't understand it, and it was very visual, and it had these implications, and he would go to his own diviners and mystics and wise men and try to ask them, okay, what, what, what is going on in this dream? None of them could figure out what was going on with this guy, but Daniel possessed miraculous power given by Yahweh, given by God, and he had the ability to interpret some of these dreams. So he had this ability to, uh, to interpret prophetic dreams, and that might have been what also exalted his status. Fifthly, uh, Daniel received a series of divine revelations. Okay, so this is apart from him interpreting dreams. Not only was he able to interpret dreams for others who had them, he received prophetic revelations or divine revelations himself directly from the Lord. And these divine revelations basically outlined God's dealings with his own people, the Jews, from the 6th century to the end of the Old Testament era. A very large span of time there, like 600 years. So he received these divine revelations that covered things that had to do with God's people over that period of time, a very long period of time. 
And that, of course, made him very unique and very qualified in some ways. Six, Daniel, however, was accused of disloyalty by his fellow officials and was condemned to die in the den of lions. Many of you have read that. If you grew up in Sunday school, you remember that whole story where God stopped the mouth of the lions and he survived overnight or what have you. It is true that he was, he was thought to be some kind of insurrectionist or he was disloyal and they were very paranoid in those days and so they threw him into this lion den. And, but God miraculously protected him, which actually resulted in the conversion of the one who sentenced him to death, which was Darius the Mede. So you had this king who was ruling over Babylon and over the whole Babylonian empire. He thinks that Daniel's on the other team for some reason, throws him into the lion's den. The guy is delivered. He's not eaten because you know he would have been because they starved the lions. That way when they threw someone in for execution, they were devoured immediately. Throws him in. Nothing happens. The guy's blown away by the supernatural power that God used to protect him, and he gets converted. He becomes a Christian, Darius the Mede. Pretty amazing. That's something that happened with Daniel. And then, as I pointed to earlier, the last thing or fact about Daniel, because we're talking about who wrote the book of Daniel and who this guy is or who he was, the last thing, Daniel's prophetic career, his job as a prophet lasted roughly 70 years. 70 years of of serving these kings and giving prophecy and and, and interpreting dreams, however you want to put it. His ministry lasted that long. And that, uh, that in and of itself is, is such an accomplishment because I try to put myself in his shoes. And first of all, I can never wear them. Um, it's not because he has smaller feet. He's just an amazing guy and God called him to do what he did and he was gifted a certain way. I'm different, but I can't even imagine doing vocational ministry for 70 years. Not because I don't love it, not because I don't like it, but, I mean, can you imagine working at your career? Outlaws for 70 years. Just, just, let's just be honest here, you know. First thing that came to mind is Ernie for 70 years. You know, I love him, but I love him, you know. Just think about being in your career. Terry, you've been working on retirement for I don't know how many years. How many of you have been there at the Modesto City Schools? 31 years. Let's add another, what, 29 to it? <laughs> right? You'd probably do it. You know, John, I don't know how many, John won't even retire from what he does. He thinks it's evil. Uh, but, you know, because, you know, who knows if he's going to get his pension these days, right? Uh, but, you know, think about being in your career or ministry or whatever for 70 years. That is amazing. Um, try to imagine with me being in your marriage for 70 years. <laughs> Carl's like, you know, Melissa's like, what does that mean? Why did he spit on me? 70 years. I mean, that is a long career. So that's the first section. Who, who wrote the book? Uh, it was Daniel. And those are some facts about Daniel that are drawn right from Scripture. Let's look at section two. What type of book is Daniel? What type of, um, what type of, uh, of, of literature is it? What, time of, what type of book is it? And the reason why I want to answer this question is because Bible books are written in various literary styles and genres and even language. Uh, so we have a book here that was written a certain way. What kind of, what 
class of literature does it belong to? Or even what class of Bible book does it belong to? Because believe it or not, the Bible is actually divided into sections. You have prophetic books, you have historical books, you have songs and poems, and, and, you know, and you have the Gospels, and you have Revelation. Whoa, what the heck's that about? You, so you have these different kinds of pieces of literature that all belong to this wonderful 66 canonized piece of Scripture, the whole Bible. So what, what is it? Well, Genesis, let, let's think of Genesis for a moment. That's a historical narrative. Uh, some people try to argue that it's poetry. The problem, if you try to argue that it's poetry, then everything in it becomes a metaphor. Well, God didn't really create the earth in six days. It's a metaphor for something else. So you have to be careful, and you have to know what the author intended. But Genesis, we would classify as a historical narrative. And, and then I would say probably many of the Psalms, which tend to be historical, because maybe King David is documenting his experience running from Saul. He could have killed Saul. He didn't. Those kinds of things. That's a bit historical. But... The Psalms tend to be written in poetic type, and, and, and many of the Psalms are actually songs. So you've got historical narrative with Genesis and other books. You've got uh, songs and poems. Uh, Proverbs is an interesting uh, set of Proverbs or book, and that would be classified as wisdom literature. And uh, you, you've, maybe you've heard that phrase, wisdom literature, and that doesn't mean that there aren't other forms of wisdom literature in Scripture. You'll find wisdom literature in probably every book in the Bible because there's wisdom there. But for the most part, Proverbs is classified as wisdom literature. Daniel, on the other hand, belongs to a unique category. Uh, and I think, firstly, it belongs to what's called the prophetic category. And the prophetic categories in scripture or category in scripture is divided into two parts you have major and you have minor okay so you have the major prophets and you have the minor prophets the major prophets the difference between the two is the major prophets their writings tend to be longer more chapters in the book minor prophets shorter chapters some of them really short think of joel think of jonah think of those books those are minors uh, the majors are longer books, and, and I would say Daniel is one of the shorter ones at 12 chapters for a major. But that's kind of one of the differences. Another difference would be that the major prophets covered, uh, they have a broader range, meaning that sometimes the prophecies they give have global implications. Okay, we're talking about a prophecy that has to do with what's going to happen throughout the world. Think of it like that. The minor prophets tend to stay narrow and localized on Israel. So you have the major prophet books, you have the minor prophet books. And Daniel just happens to be one of the major prophet books. And I thought it wasn't at first because it's only 12 chapters. But it is still considered a major prophet book, not because of how long it is, but because of its content, because it has very broad implications. Kingdoms coming, kingdoms going, as we will learn. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Limitations, which was likely written by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, those are the major prophet books. And if you think major prophet, think Isaiah for sure, because that's like 60 plus chapters. That is a massive book that I thought about teaching through, and then I thought we'd be in it for 40 years. And maybe that's okay. Who cares? We're not in a hurry, but maybe we'll do it sometime in the future. So it, it, is, um, it is a major 
prophet book, one of those books. And it is, it, not only that, but it, it's in another class, not just that it's a major prophet book, major prophetic book, it's in another class too, okay? It's in a unique class that's a little different than the major class. It belongs to what we call apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic literature, which I will most certainly define in a few moments. I'll tell you what that means. Now, Daniel, the book of Daniel, is a book that is divided into two divisions. Okay, you have like a first half and a second half. The first division, which would be chapters 1 through 6, basically contains six narratives dealing with the experiences of Daniel and his companions under Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius the Mede. So it's almost like the first six chapters are more historical, uh, if you want to put it that way. They tell of his life, how he spent his days in Babylon as a young man and growing up as a servant under these kings and what have you. It's very historical. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting about the first six is that what we see, and, and I'm kinda, it's kind of a spoiler alert, but in each chapter, we will see a Gentile king confess with ever-increasing forcefulness, forcefulness his conviction that the God of the Hebrews is the true God. That's one of the things we're going to see in the first six chapters. You've got these pagan kings. They don't know God from Adam. They've got their own false gods. But it's like each one at some point, is so struck by the greatness and power and sovereignty of Daniel's God that they make these professions like, Daniel, your God is way superior to our God. We'll see that in the first six chapters. It's very interesting and very rare, right? Very rare that we would see something like that. Now, so that's the first half of the book. The second half of the book, chapters 7 through 12, basically contains four reports from Daniel concerning a dream and three visions which he received under Belshazzar, Darius, and a man named Cyrus who will come into the picture later on. These chapters offer a broad perspective on human history from the time of Nebuchadnezzar to the end of the world. Okay, so the first six chapters are more historical narrative the last six have primarily to do with end times, apocalyptic events, prophecy, those sorts of things. And I think that's the thing that trips people up on this book. It's, there's a lot of history and then there's a lot of prophecy. People get to the sixth chapter, they go into the seventh, they go, I have no idea what's going on. There's all this symbolism and all this stuff. So the first six, mostly historical. The last, definitely some history there, but also some prophecy and apocalyptic stuff. The focus, I, I would say the focus, however, in the last six is on events which would occur during the last six centuries of the Old Covenant age. Okay, so the last 600 years, like because basically Daniel was written about 600 years before Christ came. A lot of what Daniel said has to do with that period and even the apocalyptic or um, uh, uh, the apocalyptic, apocalyptic-esque, we would call it, or prophetic events that have to do with that period. And quite frankly, we're going to get into the scripture in the weeks to come. We're going to see that some of the things that he prophesied so long ago came true during the intertestamental period. Thinking of Antiochus Epiphanes, who we talked about 
who, who was a terrible ruler, and he's mentioned by Daniel and stuff. So, and, but the prophecies in the last six chapters are broader than just that 600-year period. There are some implications for the, the end of the world. So that's interesting. Some other facts about uh, the book of Daniel, because we are talking about the type of book that it is. Um, it is a bilingual book, we would want to call it. It is written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, it begins and concludes in Hebrew, and in chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 4a. Okay, so there's the Hebrew. It's written in Hebrew there, and then you swing over to chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through chapter 12, verse 13. So that's, those are the Hebrew sections of the book. Um, and I, I was thinking, well, how challenging that would be if you're reading it and you didn't know Aramaic and you're reading something in English per se and all of a sudden it's in Spanish. You'd be like, uh, what am I supposed to do here? It would be like that. It would have been like that for some of the people back then, although I think most people spoke and wrote both Hebrew and Aramaic during that time. So you have the book opening with Hebrew, you have it closing with Hebrew, and then the middle portion is in what is known as Aramaic which is a language that the Lord actually spoke in uh, during his incarnation. It was a popular language during the time of Jesus. Um, and how would we want to think of that language? We would think of it as the international language of the 6th century. Uh, it was almost like the generic language that most people wrote and spoke in, maybe like English is throughout the world. Okay? Now, the author deliberately wrote the book in this Hebrew slash Aramaic pattern. Aramaic was used in the portions of the book which deal with the future of Gentile empires, right? I mean, if it's a, if it's a kind of your international language and you have things that you want to say to the international community, then you have to say them in the language they understand, okay? So, what we're saying here is that some of these prophecies have to do with other nations beyond Israel. And so Daniel switched from writing in Hebrew, which has to do primarily with the Jews, to Aramaic because now he's addressing foreign people that are not Jew. He's addressing Gentiles and what have you. So he wrote in Hebrew to really address his people and that he wrote in Aramaic to address everyone else. That way everyone could benefit from the book of Daniel. So it's a bilingual book. Daniel is, is also, and it's so important to mention this, that it is a unified book. Daniel is a unified book. And, and the reason why I say this is because there are many, many scholars who question the unity of Daniel. Uh, they point out that chapters 1 through 6 record historical incidents in Daniel's lifetime and that chapters 7 through 12 record prophetic, prophetic visions given to Daniel. Okay, this observation coupled with Daniel's use of two languages has led many to infer a multiplicity of authors. Well, what I'm saying is scholars say well, we don't think that Daniel's the author because it was written in two different languages. Okay, part of it's written in Hebrew and part of it's written in Aramaic. Why would anyone switch that up? And what other biblical authors have done that? So the fact that there's unity here, that has been called into question because of the use of two different languages, and not just the use of two different languages, but also because part of it's historical, and the other parts 
prophetic. And so it seems like somebody wrote the first half in Hebrew, and they're talking about history like Genesis, and then it seems like somebody else wrote the back half because it has to do with prophecy and it's in Aramaic, or at least the middle section that is. So it's, it's, it's been scrutinized that Daniel is the author because of that. The fact is these observations do not support such a conclusion. You can't arrive at the conclusion. Okay, Daniel didn't write it because of that. You can't just say that. There's other research that shows that he did. As I already noted, Daniel had reasons for employing two languages, right? He was writing to both Gentiles who spoke Aramaic and to Hebrews who wrote and spoke Hebrew. That's... Totally logical. He wanted people to, the people who were going to read the book, he wanted them to understand what he was writing. So he wrote it in their languages. So that's a great defense and apologetic against dual authorship or multi authors. Uh, and uh, the fact of the matter is, ancient literature often used different literary forms to heighten a contrast. You might be writing one particular book and use poetry in one section and then use prose in another. You know, people switched back and forth between writing styles. The authors of Scripture did that from time to time. That's another thing that we're seeing here. The book of Job, uh, for instance, is mostly poetic. But the prologue, chapters 1 and 2, and the epilogue, the end, right, 42, 7 through 17, are in prose. So he opens with prose. He says almost everything in the book in a poetic form, and then he closes with prose. And what does prose mean? It means general, basic writing. That's all it means, the way that you would write, the way that I would write. It's not a special form of writing. So there is nothing in the literary style of Daniel that demands more than one author, right? He did what others have always done, switching writing styles, addressing different groups. Man, I'm thinking of the book of Acts where the apostle Paul even quoted some of the Athenian or Greek philosophers to make points to the Greeks, you know, God gives us our being and, and he puts us right where he wants us to live. He says something of that nature in the middle part of Acts. And so he's using an example from his culture. Our biblical authors even did that. For crying out loud, Jesus went off the beaten path and taught parables about farming because most of the teaching he did was in the region of Galilee, which was the central valley of Israel or Palestine, if you will. So it's not abnormal for an author to use different styles and tactics. So I don't think it's, it's, you know, that's a terrible, terrible argument that, well, because it was written this way or that way, it had to be multiple people. And I think at the end of the day, it's the devil trying to undermine Scripture and trying to cause us to doubt in its validity and its, in its sufficiency and in its authority. Because if things aren't clear, then we have doubt, then we run down rabbit holes. And God has made his word very, very clear and the authorship very, very clear. You just have to do the work to find the answers. And most people don't want to do that. The unity of Daniel is further supported by noting the interdependence of its two divisions. The revelation in chapter 2 parallels closely uh, with the revelations in chapter 7. So there's parallels in the first part and there's parallels in the back part, which shows that the same author was behind this stuff. Even some of the terms and theological concepts in the first half are similar to those in the second half. Also, Daniel has a... Um, he has a significant and unifying role in both portions of the book. Most importantly, the message of the book is the same in both halves of the book. 
And what is the general basic message of the first half, the second half, and the whole book together? What is the main point? God is exceedingly great beyond any expectation or knowledge. God is sovereign. God rules over the nations. God controls the nations and directs the nations and moves the nations so that they fulfill His will. God is sovereignly preserving. This is a theme in Daniel. He is sovereignly preserving the nation Israel and bringing her to the fulfillment of the covenant that he had made so long ago with Father Abraham. The book makes these points across the board. I think it would be very difficult for a multiplicity of authors to hold that primary theme. And and Daniel kept that theme at the beginning and in the middle and in the end. At the end of the day, God is great and God is ultimately sovereign. Nations rise, nations fall. He's protecting and preserving his people. That is Daniel in a nutshell. And then I mentioned it earlier, Daniel is an apocalyptic book. And I want to talk about that for a moment. The revelations concerning the future, which are found in Daniel, are given in dreams and visions in which symbolism plays an important part. Such literature is called apocalyptic by scholars. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible has several characteristics. Okay, this is how you know if you're dealing with apocalyptic literature. First, in apocalyptic literature, a person a person who received God's truths in visions recorded what he saw. So apocalyptic literature tends to be revealed through dreams and visions. And you will, if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you'll know that that's not exactly how most Scripture was given. It was just divinely inspired or spoken to the individual in some sort of spiritual sense, and they recorded what they were hearing or what they were thinking. It is different, a different type of revelation to get it that way as opposed to getting it through a vision. To see something that's playing out and then to record that. That is by definition apocalyptic literature. It's to get a vision with symbols and things and then to record that. Secondly, apocalyptic literature makes extensive, extensive use of symbols or signs. Okay? So apocalyptic literature isn't always just straightforward speaking or total and absolute clarity on something. Sometimes it's, I'm thinking of like Joseph where the sheaths came up and came down. You know, it's, it's, in, a, it's in a visionary kind of form and it's done through symbolism. Uh, symbols are given to convey truth, right? So that'd be the second thing. Third, apocalyptic literature normally gives revelation concerning God's program for the future for the future of his people Israel. So apocalyptic literature uh, it's given through symbols, it's given through dreams, but it has a particular point. It tends to deal with what's going to happen in the future. It has that prophetic piece to it and it's so vital that we understand that. Fourth, prose Ordinary writing was usually employed in apocalyptic literature rather than the poetic style which was normal in other forms of prophetic literature. Okay? 
If Job used poetry and he gives some sort of prophecy, the prophecy was given in poetry. And other forms of prophecy in Scripture were given through poetic means, through a poetic vehicle. But Daniel's book is written in prose, general writing, and that puts it in a class of its own, apocalyptic literature, because apocalyptic literature is almost always written, not in poetry, so we can't quite get it. It's in prose, general basic writing. Now, Daniel, the book of Daniel, I must say, served as a prototype, okay, for the rather extensive collection of books of this sort of apocalyptic genre, which appeared during the intertestamental period. What I'm telling you is, there was a period of silence from God, 400 years. We talked about this during the Work of Christ series. You have Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. You have Matthew, which is the first book of the New. Between those two testaments, there's 400 years. During that period, you had things that are in the Catholic Bible, called like Maccabees and these other books. Those books, some of them historical, some poetry, many apocalyptic were written during that intertestamental period. And I believe, and other scholars believe, that Daniel was used as a sort of prototype for those extra-biblical writings. It was used in that way. Now, now, now that doesn't give any validity to those writings. They're not canon, which means they're not authorized, they're not approved, they're not actual scripture. They're just a lot of writings. Some of them are quite fascinating. I would say be very careful with them because they're very, they can be very misleading. Now, the New Testament book of Revelation is, in a sense, modeled after the book of Daniel. Okay, they're the same kinds of writing, the same kind of style, the same genre, if you will. But I must note, as I've already alluded to, Daniel and Revelation are in a class by themselves. They are not classed with the apocalyptic writings of the intertestamental period, or the apocryphal writings would be another name for it. Those are in, in another class Revelation and Daniel are in their own class because they are the only divinely inspired apocalyptic writings on planet Earth. They're the only two books that were ever written in that genre, in that style, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. So know that. That is an important fact. One guy said they're the only uh, genuinely inspired apocalyptic books ever written. And I think that's really fascinating because that makes them in so incredibly unique. Now, let me ask, just take a quick poll, who has actually read Daniel and who has read Revelation? Anyone in here ever read both books? Anyone in here ever said, holy Lord, what's going on? I have no idea what I just read. There's a lamb flying in the sky. You know what I mean? It's like, right? You see the symbols, you see the symbolism and stuff, right? Right, and let me tell you, we have as a church, not us in RHC per se, but as a church in general, have been fouling up those two books for a long time because they can be very perplexing and confusing. I think it helps for us to know they were written in prose, which means that they probably state fact, and they're, they're, there's not a lot of mystery. It just it has to do with uncovering what's there. But I can tell you, as a seasoned Christian and veteran of the scriptures, and I've read both books, most of the time I'm scratching my head going, I do not understand what is going on here. Because they are unique and they are in their own class. 
And they can be a little confusing because of the symbolism. It's like you have to peel the layer off. I remember when uh, Cameron announced that he was going to teach through Revelation in the youth group. I said, better you than me. Because I tell you, that is not, that is not an easy book to preach through. Now, some people say it is an easy book to preach you through if you just preach everything in it literally. You can't preach everything in it literally. Not everything in there might be intended to be literal. Is it a thousand, exactly a thousand year reign from Christ? Likely, but that could also be a metaphor for his sovereign reign and rule for a period, period of time. I mean, you just, some of these things, and I think that part was probably intended to be literal, but there are other parts that aren't intended to be literal. They are metaphorical. They are a symbol. So you have to be careful with it. And Daniel is in that class, so we must tread lightly and work slowly. In addition to Daniel and Revelation, this might be an interesting fact for you, in addition to those two books, the two only divinely inspired apocalyptic literature books, you can find bits and pieces of apocalyptic literature in Ezekiel, who was a contemporary of Daniel, lived about during the same time. In chapters 37 through 48 of Ezekiel, who uh, is, is another prophet of Daniel's day, wrote some amazing stuff. There is apocalyptic literature in those 11 chapters. And then also, if you fast forward into Zechariah, which would be like a minor prophet, chapters uh, 1 verse 7 through chapter 7 verse 8, there is apocalyptic literature there as well. And I think that with the book of Daniel and Revelation and that, that 11 chapter chunk in Ezekiel and then mm, six and a half chapter chunk in Zechariah, those are the only four places where apocalyptic literature appear in Scripture. The rest of it is something else, historical, poem, song, what have you. Now, in terms of interpreting visions, symbols, and this is the key, Visions, symbols, and signs in apocalyptic literature, one is seldom left to his own ingenuity to discover the truth. And what this guy said, I quoted this from a particular person, it was, uh, I think it was um, Boyce who said it, you can't depend on yourself to try to figure out apocalyptic literature on your own and to employ your own tactics, your own ingenuity. Okay, in most instances, an examination of the context, the who, what, where, why it was written, or a comparison with a parallel biblical passage, that will provide the Scripture's own interpretation of the visions and symbols employed. What this particular commentarian is saying is that you must use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Okay, so that means that the symbols and the signs and the complex, thing, complex things that were written in Daniel and Revelation, they must be interpreted via Scripture. Don't come at it from the outside because that's where you'll run down these rabbit holes and that's why we've got, you know, 89 different eschatologies and a lot of confusion as to what this means or that means. You must interpret all Scripture with Scripture. Scripture is self-interpreting. So if you want to know what the symbol in Revelation means, you must search the Scriptures to find the answer because they are very likely there somewhere. Very important when it comes to interpretation. Daniel is also, um, it is a book of miracles, okay, in that it records a cluster of miracles which God wrought 
during the period of the exile. So God was active during the uh, the exilic, if you want to call it that, period. He was active and he was working miracles during this time. He was also judging his nation and that's why they were deported to begin with. They had given themselves to idolatry and he removed them from their homeland and destroyed their temple and put them in prison or bondage, if you will, in Babylon. So he was judging his nation, but he was also working miracles because God will usually work miracles and judge and do these kinds of things sometimes at the same time. Now this was the third of four biblical periods of approximately 40 years Uh, each, in which God demonstrated His omnipotent power in the affairs of men. So this thing that happened during Daniel's time belongs to a classification of other times where God displayed miracles to witness to or to deal with the affairs of men. In the time of the Exodus, which most of us are familiar with, and subsequent wilderness wandering, God demonstrated His superiority to the gods of Egypt through almost daily miracles, right? You remember the ten plagues and striking the rock and the water, the parting of the Red Sea, all of those sorts of things he did then. Some 500 years later, in the age of Elijah, another outburst of miracles is documented. At that time, Israel, the northern kingdom, was about to follow Queen Jezebel into Baal worship, her false god. In Daniel's day, And so those are miracles that are associated with those particular times. In Daniel's day, as I said, the issue was, again, the allure of idolatry, giving oneself over to false gods, believing in false gods, the false gods of the nations, the false gods of the land, if you will. The destruction of the temple and deportation of the Jews to Babylon had really shaken their faith in God. Okay, they deserved what they had coming to them, but it had shaken their faith. They just saw their homeland destroyed and decimated, their temple where they worshiped God destroyed. There's always a faithful remnant of true believers amongst uh, the Israelites, amongst in the church. That group was impacted. Their faith was faltering a bit because they had seen these horrific events happen and all this bloodshed and these things happen. So because God was judging and these things were happening, He was bringing judgment And these things were happening, and the faith of his people, of his true people, was faltering to a degree because of those events. Another mighty outpouring of miracles was in order. Examples from Daniel. These would be miraculous examples from the book of Daniel. Four young Jews were rewarded with visibly superior health after only ten days on a diet of vegetables only. We're going to read about that right up front in the first chapter. You had four men who did not want to comply with Babylonian rules and eat the same food and things. They wanted to honor God with their diet, and they chose to do that, and they ate only vegetables for a couple of weeks, and they were as fat as everyone else, and I don't mean like blubber, I mean just like thick skin and all that. They were, they were healthy, they were robust, they were great, and I hate the fact that a lot of vegetarians base vegetarianism on this passage. This particular passage that we're going to read has nothing to do with the vegetables they eat. It has to do with the miracle God worked in preserving their their health. So, you know, if you hear somebody say, well, look, you know, let's go on the Daniel diet. Okay, you're going to need a miracle to go along with the diet. Because if all you eat is broccoli or asparagus, you're going to have weird-smelling pee. 
You, you may not, you know, hey, hey, what's going on? You know, you might not turn into an Olaf and be all healthy. You might be like, ah, you need protein in these things. And so this is not, you know, let's not go down the Daniel diet road like people are doing. You know, it, God worked a miracle in keeping those men fit and healthy because he had some plans for those men and they needed to be fit and healthy. And they had God's favor. So think of it like that. That's, that's one of the miracles that takes place there. God sustained the health on vegetables only. And I'm not saying that if you eat vegetables only, you can probably be pretty healthy. But the funny thing about vegetarians and people that eat vegetables only is they're always trying to come up with some kind of a meat-like product. Vegetable sausage. I see them. I take pictures of them and I laugh. Vegetable bacon. You don't want to eat bacon, but you want something that looks like it, that smells like it, and that doesn't taste like it. Bacon is amazing. Right? Vegetarians don't want to eat, veg- they don't want to eat meat, but they're always trying to make up things that are like meat. I don't understand that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Uncle Benny Abednego, were, these, are three, these are Daniel's three friends. Those are their Babylonian names. They were preserved. This is another miracle. They were preserved in the midst of a fiery execution chamber. They were thrown into a furnace, and it was heated up higher than it had ever been heated up, so much so that people were probably thinking, it's going to blow. And yet they were joined in that place. There were three of them in there. A fourth figure appeared in that furnace with them and seemingly preserved their lives and kept them alive because they should have been consumed by the fire. That's another miracle that God did. And, and many scholars think that that was Jesus himself that entered into that furnace and preserved their lives. We would call that a Christophany. That's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus himself, a Christophany. Could have been. There's another miracle, a floating hand, right? Kind of like da Vinci painted. You remember the floating hand in the Last Supper thing? Harry, you were probably behind that, weren't you? Harry Jr., you put the floating hand in there. There was a floating hand that wrote a message of doom on the wall of Belshazzar's, or Belshazzar's palace in the midst of a drunken banquet. We get to look at that. That's going to be really interesting. But a floating hand writes a message of doom on the wall. That's a miracle that God worked during this time. Uh, The mouths of lions were sealed so that Daniel experienced no harm in their den. Now, I would say that the greatest miracles in the book of Daniel, which we will look at and I will do my best to break down, they are not the stopping of the mouths of lions, the writing on the wall, you know, eating vegetables only and being, you know, Arnold. They're, They're not that. Those things are great. The greatest, greatest miracles in the book are Daniel's revelations concerning the future of the world, concerning the future of the world kingdoms, and more importantly, the future of the people of God, you and I. Those are the greatest miracles in the book. So it is a book of miracle. Section three, when was Daniel written? When was it written? It was written during his period, the 6th century B.C., roughly 600 years before the birth of Christ. It begins, basically, the first couple of lines begin at about 605 B.C. when Babylon conquered Jerusalem and exiled Daniel and his three friends and many others. It continues, right, from 605 B.C. It continues to the eventual demise 
of, the, of Babylonian supremacy in 539 B.C. when uh, Medo-Persian uh, besiegers conquered Babylon. And then it goes all the way out beyond that to 536 B.C. So it, it covers a large span of time. And it, you know, it starts in 605 B.C. And it was written during that time. Critics, however reject an early date for the writing of Daniel, mainly because they reject uh, predictive prophecy. Uh, the book of Daniel unfolds details concerning the history of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Daniel uh, details recorded in Daniel 11, 5 through 35 were fulfilled during the intertestamental period. I pointed to that earlier. Skeptics insist that Daniel could not have foreknown those details, but must have written them after the events transpired and cast them in the form of prophecy to give credence to his writing. This is a, a terrible way to view it. Uh, what it means is that Daniel wasn't written during the 600s and the prophecies were given. He wrote them. Somebody, maybe him or somebody else, wrote these things after the events happened to make it look like he knew what he was talking about, to give credence to his writings. It's a, a terrible angle. Now, such a view, of course, denies the power of God to reveal what he has predetermined, right? And I can tell you who comes up with these views. It wasn't written then. It wasn't written by him because of the language. It wasn't this. It's the liberal scholars, because they basically, basically deny all things supernatural. They are like the modern-day Sadducees. The Sadducees that lived during Jesus' day rejected all things supernatural. They did not believe in angels, did not believe in miracles, those things. And you have some who profess Christ who deny all things supernatural. Liberal scholars say there's no way he could have written these things in advance because that's impossible. Well, it's impossible for human beings. It's not impossible for a supernatural God who's all-powerful and sovereign. A number of other objections have been raised against the early date for the book. For example, some argue that uh, the several Persian and Greek words in the book indicate that it must have been written much later than the 6th century B.C. However, archaeology has revealed that commerce existed between Greece and Babylon even before Daniel's day. This would explain the presence of Greek words in the book of Daniel. And the Persian words in the book were uh, from an official or literary form of the Persian language, which was in wide use throughout the Near East during that time. A further objection is based on the apocalyptic literature found in the book. Such literature appeared prolifically in Israel in the latter time of the Maccabees, right? The intertestamental period. Therefore, many scholars infer that the book must have been written during that, peri that period. However, as already noted, apocalyptic literature is found in the book of Ezekiel, who was a 6th century prophet. See, I don't understand where the objections come from when there's proof right in Scripture that these things are true. Further objection is made to an early date because of the advanced theology in the book. Believe it or not, when Daniel wrote this, he was writing some advanced theology. Critics claim that uh, frequent references to angels and a reference to the resurrection of the dead necessitates a post-exilic after, that would be after the exile date for the book. 
This, however, overlooks the fact that angels are frequently referred to throughout Israel's long history and that resurrection is mentioned in passages like Psalm 16.10 and Isaiah 26.19, which certainly predate the time of Daniel. Lastly, critics hold that since God's name, Yahweh, which means the Lord, is not used by Daniel, and since this name was commonly used in Daniel's day by others, the book must have been written during a later time. This is another argument. He never says Yahweh in his book, and that's what others who were writing then said. This objection fails to note that in chapter 9, Yahweh is used eight times. Eight times, according to the word of the Lord, Yahweh, according, uh, what? I turned my face to the Lord, translated Yahweh. I prayed to the Lord, Yahweh, etc., etc. So what I'm giving you now is an apologetic for why Daniel was written when it was written and who it was written by. The proof is in Scripture. It is what it is. Let's accept it. Last section, section 4. This might be, I wouldn't say one, is mo- one section is more important than the other, but I do feel like the context and the reason why something was written, especially this, I believe in my heart that's what's most important to us because that's where the implications for us are. Why was Daniel written section four? Daniel wrote his book for several reasons. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit directed him to do so. Okay? All Scripture is God what? Breathed or inspired, right? God breathed or inspired. So first and foremost, he wrote the book, saw the visions, recorded them, wrote his history, wrote what was happening right then in that moment to him because he was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit to do that. That is essential, that is key, because all of Scripture is ultimately penned by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he had polemical reasons. Polemic means to make an argument, right? Polemic. Can you say it? Polemic. It means to make an argument. He wanted to make an argument in this book, and he wanted to sustain this argument with facts. Through multiple examples, nations rising and falling, and pagan kings repenting and glorifying Yahweh, Daniel shows how great the God of Israel is in comparison to the lame impotent deities of Babylon. The greatness of God, as I've already said, the greatness of God and His sovereignty, those are the primary themes of the book. And that is why we have been singing about God's greatness all morning. Did you notice the three songs that we sang? They all had to do with the greatness of God. Okay, so he had, he wanted to make an argument through the book. He comes into Babylon and and God works miracles and does these things. And at the same time, Daniel is recording and making it known to the Babylonian people, your deities are lame in comparison to my God, to Yahweh the Lord. That's an argument that he sustains in his writings. Very important. The polemic is there. Uh, Let's see, what else? Inspired, uh, polemic, third. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? There it is. He had didactic reasons. Okay? Didactic means teaching. He wanted to teach us. He wanted to teach his people. He wanted to teach the people of God throughout the ages something about God, something about history. Daniel 
teaches in the ultimate sense the valuable truth that God frustrates the designs of the mightiest monarchs but defends the servants who remain faithful to Him. Those are some implications for you. If you remain faithful to Him, He will guard, He will guide, He will fulfill. Now I'd say that He does those things for us even when we're unfaithful because He abounds in grace. But for the most part, one of the primary messages of Daniel is that, man, when you stick to God, He works it out for you. He's got it. He controls. He works things to your advantage for your benefit. He really does, even when there's heartache, even when there's trouble. He does that. He wanted to teach that lesson, teach that God is in control. He frustrates the monarchs, but He preserves us, those who, the, the remnant, those who stay faithful to Him. Fourth, He had consolatory reasons. Believers through the centuries have taken comfort in Daniel's revelation that the course of history is determined by a divine and immutable plan. You can just open up the book of Daniel, especially the latter half, and look at how God brings things around for His people and what He's going to do in the world and how He's going to take care of us. And I tell you what, hope wells up in you. A boldness wells up in you because I tell you what, do we not need to know today as Christians living in this Babylon, which is exactly what the U.S. is? If you go back and study Babylon, it looks just like the U.S. today. Do we not need consolatory facts? Do we not need to know that God is in control and that He's positioning, that He makes nations rise, He makes nations fall, but He's always in it to win it for His people regardless of what's going on around us? Do we not need to know that now and today? Do we need not need the didactic truths of Daniel? Teach us God how you're in control and how you're maneuvering and how you're manipulating, how you're working for our good and for our benefit and ultimately for your glory. We need that today more than anything. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit led me to teach through this book. We live during uncertain times, right? We do. I mean, we're looking at it going, just in the last seven or eight years, this country has done a full 360. Now imagine with another eight years of that kind of thinking and another and another and another... Where will we be? In the hands of our sovereign God. That's where we will be as a church. That is what Daniel wanted to teach his people because what? They lost their country. They lost their temple. We may lose our country. We may lose our sanctuaries. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to have hope that's built on the solid ground of God's Word. That's what we need. And Daniel... The pages of Scripture in Daniel, God will give that to us through, the, through that book. Daniel shows his readers that in God's own time, the trials of the saints end. We'll learn that and see that in the book of Daniel. And we will also see that one day, every oppressor will be destroyed, and the saints shall inherit the kingdom. That would be a primary message of Daniel. That's one of the didactic reasons that Daniel wrote it. He wanted his people to see that God has not forsaken you. You're going through something, but he's here. He's present, and he has a plan, and Babylonia is nothing in comparison to what he has prepared for you. 
those are primary things that we need to get through this book because we need hope based on Scripture and based on God's promises. We live during uncertain times. That's it. I do have a little bit of an application for you. A simple one. Because I'm, this isn't really a sermon. It's, it's been a crash course on the book of Daniel. So what could you take away from this? Or what would maybe God want you to do about it? First, I think this. Read through the book of Daniel over and over as we study it together. Don't, don't just wait every Sunday to get to it and then open it up and look at a small chunk. Start reading the book of Daniel. It's only 12 tri- chapters. You can read it in probably an hour or less. Read through it multiple times. Become familiar with the key characters. Become familiar with the narratives, the storylines, the symbols. Get it down. Get it to where it's in you. And, and like when you come on Sunday, you, you already know where we're, you know, I, he's going to be around here and I already got a sense of what's going on there. You just go ahead and take a step out in faith and go ahead and do some work. If you're reading all over the place right now, if you're reading another portion of Scripture, you can keep doing that if you want to, but try to put some time in where we're at and spend more time there than anywhere else. And you'd be surprised what God might reveal to you before you even step through those doors on a Sunday morning. You might stand up and say, well, I don't know if you'd do that because that'd be weird when I'm teaching. But you might grab me afterwards and say, Hey, man, I had a thought about this one section that you just taught on. I can't tell you how many times people have done some of that work and come to me after a sermon and said, what do you think about this? And I say, dang it, man, I would have put that in the sermon. That is so good. That was way better than what I said. I hate you. No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> read, read through the book. Get familiar. Memorize portions of it. It's okay. Take little small chunks. Take a verse or two. And I would say discuss the book and the sermons with one another. Iron sharpens iron, amen? Talk about it, man. Let's get something going here where it's not just a Sunday thing. We're like, you know, Carlos, at lunch with somebody. Hey, you know, I've read this part in Daniel or whatever. Let's get it going. Let's get moving with it. It could be really cool. Secondly, pray through the book of Daniel over and over as we study it together. Ask God to reveal to you the precious truths in this book. And you know what? Equally important, ask Him to reveal them to the preacher. Help me. Okay, and to one another. God, reveal what you want us to know here. Pray through it. Ask Him to do that. And I would say also, ask Him to replace, as you're praying over the book and through the book, ask Him to replace your fear. Your your fears, your anxieties with the knowledge of His sovereignty and the knowledge of His greatness. If you are a very timid and frightful Christian and you're always struggling with I don't, the uncertainties and I don't know about this and, and this could happen or this did happen and you kind of walk around defeated and all that. Start praying through Scripture. Pray through Daniel and ask God, remove the spirit of timidity and give me a spirit of boldness and of power. Because He will, especially through a book like this where His power is all over it. Start praying for yourself. Start praying for others whom you know struggle with timidity and fear and uncertainty and anxiety. And I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know. Right? Start saying, I know what's going to happen. I read the last six chapters of Daniel. We win. That's what's going to happen. It sucks right now. But you know what? In the future, it's going to be amazing. It's okay. Pray for yourself. 
We need bold Christians during this time. We don't need a bunch of, oh, defeated and this and that. And, oh, man, we need Christians just to have the joy of the Lord and to be filled with His Spirit and His power and to proclaim the truth and just, and just live it out. Ask God to grace you. Pray. Ask God to grace you with courage, to grace you with boldness so that you can stand firm and live victoriously in today's Babylon. The good old U.S. of A. Worst times are coming, friends. You better be ready. Finally, commit to being here each week so that you can listen to each message, so that you can grow, you can learn, you can be transformed by God's power and God's Spirit. Make attending RHC a top priority for you and for your family.